This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and we have a great hour of science coming up for you. In the studio with me is Chris Kaki. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Blur. How are I just you? Blurted How are you? that out. Yeah, it's hung. It's become a republic and taken know, over your head. You know why? It's because our our fabulous guest today, which is she's fabulous before she's coming to the studio because she provided us with cupcakes, and I Correct. just scoffed one two minutes before we went yeah. to it. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Dr. Catherine's in the studio. Good morning, Dr. Shane. We're going to talk a bit about you later. Oh, sounds good. <laughs> uh, well, there's been some ethical issues with that. Yes, that's right. yes. I'm sitting right in the middle of the studio. I'm feeling quite nervous. Yeah. And Dr. Ray, welcome. G'day. It's, I, I was traveling the last couple of times I was supposed to be on, so it's the first time I've been on there. Yeah, it has so. been a little while, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and, and, and to make up for it, I think I'm on three weeks in a row. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I should know that, but <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, it's all good. Um, we, uh, it's interesting today because um, you know, one of the things people don't realize is that this show, in terms of hosts, has a 50-50 gender balance right down the middle. But that's on average for the year. So every now and then, it becomes yeah. a sausage fest. And today, sorry, Catherine, but you're surrounded by guys. That's okay. It's good fun. It's good fun. Yeah. Um, now then, uh, Chris KP, we'll get into some news. Do you want to start us off? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Um, frankly, I think of little else. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, stromatolites. Uh, and if you're not familiar with stromatolites, these are essentially a, a, a rocky structure that is made by and inhabited by cyanobacteria. Hmm. And if you're not into cyanobacteria, you frankly should be because, yes. They're the first fossils? Pretty much. Um, and the cool thing about them is that they're the, the bacteria that live inside them and that make these structures are, in fact, unicellular. Um, and they're incredibly important. So they're basically, you know, depending on how you draw your line, they're pretty much the first life. Like, they're, they're and 3.7 billion years ago, sort of ages ago, life. But the thing is that, you know, in themselves, a unicellular thing like that would pretty much die out in most circumstances. You wouldn't see it in the fossil record. But these guys you see everywhere because they built these sort of rocky structures by absorbing minerals from, from water. Mm. Um, they still exist. Famously in Shark Bay in, South, in uh, Western Australia, they have the, you can go out and see them and it's all terribly cool. They're lumps of rock in shallow water and shallow water with loads of minerals. <laughs> now, that is in itself not especially interesting. The important, things about, important thing about stromatolites and the cyanobacteria is that they triggered photosynthesis. They started doing that, right. which means they started releasing oxygen into the air. So basically, you know, biodiversity sort of bloomed when they started getting their stuff right. But of course, that also triggered the, the development of multicellular organisms, many of which would eat the cyanobacteria. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those, wish we hadn't invented this thing, damn it, now we're getting hit in the life. Now, that's not what I'm talking about, though. What's cool about that is that they found some new ones, or they, they found some old ones, but they just recently found some old ones in one of the most remote parts of the country, in a little place called Giblin River Valley in Tasmania, in the middle of nowhere, they found stromatolites. Wow. And yeah, and it's weird because it's a, it's a freshwater yeah, um, okay. river. And so they're like, well, so where are they? How's this all working? And what they think they've found is that there are, there are mainly calcium deposits running into this little river, which the stromatolites can be, can be built out of. So the bacteria are able to sort of gather this stuff and build these things. They're, they're not tall. These are more sort of mm. layer-based things, but they're unmistakably stromatolite. They've even found snails. Um, this is, again, multicellular things that potentially might try and eat these guys or eat things that eat them, etc. Um, but the snails are dying. It looks like they can't cope with the high calcium. And so this is piles of dead snails lying around. Mm. And just inside from that, there's these layers upon layers of fantastic ancient stromatolites. So we can add 
the middle of nowhere in Tasmania to our list of incredibly old, incredibly important biological sites. So I wonder if they were originally the same type of ones you get in saltwater conditions and have had to evolve yeah. as sea levels dropped you know, over the, or, over yeah, the millennia. and that's the other thing. So I don't know whether they, you know, what their connection is to to the to the salt and the mm. sea and the mineral mm. profile in detail. Um, and there may be, presumably, there was loads more in in that kind of area. But yeah. of course, that long ago, that area was different anyway. So, so it's hard to tell how they sort of you know got there. But do they think it was freshwater? Does it like they it was like literally a micro environment? It may have been. And this wow. is what, this is this is the question. So maybe mm. it's. I mean, let's face it. If you put it together, you go look. They need light. And in fact, they're actually pretty good at dealing with non-visible light too, uh, surprisingly good. But they need light and they need minerals. Mm. And they need carbon dioxide. That's basically what they need to survive. So if you've got that, you've got a chance, I suppose. Yeah. Just as a, that, that whole thing of bringing biology and geology together. I mean, it's, yeah. especially when you, when you talk to geologists these days about, you know, real subsurface stuff. I mean, the deep stuff. Mm. And they say, well, actually, there's a lot going on there that's not just about rocks moving around because of lava. Um, <laughs> it's, a, you know, gases and other things yeah. that they're actually produced as these things consume or produce, you know, some of these materials. It's highly dynamic. Um, it's, yeah. it's a really dynamic thing. Yeah. And, and, and the life part of it is part of that dynamic aspect yeah. of the geology, which is, which is very cool. It's a little bit creepy. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. think about the, the Earth is living around us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Everything's Jeez. fine. That's a big statement for a Sunday morning. Correct. Dr. Catherine? Dr Shane, I've been really interested this week in some research out of an engineering group in, at, from the National University of Singapore who have created and are now testing an ultra-thin microfiber sensor which has uh, potentially very good applications for real-time health monitoring mm -hmm. uh, in people. So this is a, uh, a very small microfiber sensor. It's the diameter of just one hair strand, so it's very small. It's soft and it's flexible and it's a wearable technology. So it can be implanted under the skin, uh, very very hard to actually feel under the skin other than compared to other devices that, that are being implanted at the moment. And it has very good uh, electrical conductivity. And what this sensor can do in the moment, what they're testing, is the ability of it to detect pressure waveforms. Uh, so what the sensor is, it has a comprises of a liquid metallic alloy, which it serves as a sensing element, and it's encapsulated within a soft silicon microtube. And then what it does is we can actually measure people's heart rate, people's mm. blood pressure, and also the pressures within the arteries of, of, the, um, of people's arteries around their body. So potentially some application of this and what they're looking at at the moment is that there is a disease called atherosclerosis, which is a cardiac or heart disease, which is a build-up of flatty pla fatty plaques in the blood vessels. And normally you need to wait until it gets quite severe and it's detected on CT scans or MRIs, and it's really a si significant disease. It can lead to heart attacks. This sensor could potentially give real-time monitoring and detect changes in pressure waveforms really early in the disease process that we might actually be able to detect and pick up this disease earlier. Hmm. Um, yeah. um, one of the things that I, I still forget about when I go to the doctors, I feel like I'm in a Back to the Future film. Is when they wrap something around yeah, my yeah, arm yeah, and yeah. pump it up. And I'm like, is that really the way we should be doing this? Like, it just blows me away. It's like fax machines, you know. Yeah. And we've been doing that for so long. Yeah. Uh, so th this is this is the future of these types of technologies, mm. and to be able to give real time and probably more accurate measures of blood pressure and, and things would be fantastic. So looking at a few applications, the other application is detecting pressures in bandages. Okay. So mm. so it, it's quite common a common common condition in people. Uh, leg ulcers or skin yeah. ulcers when there's pooling of blood in your veins and there's a lot of pressure on the skin and, and it creates these ulcers and normally the way we treat it is with compression bandages but to get the compression right is very difficult mm. if it's too tight it's going to cut off the blood flow too loose it's not going to heal yep. so you could actually put these sensors in the bandages to get that pressure 
Perfect. Yep. And call them Goldilocks bandages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just right yeah. bandage. Yeah, nice. Trade, trademark. Yeah, very there, good. There we go. <laughs> It's not exciting how they, technology. How, do they, how does this does this carry a, a battery or or a fuel cell or how does it <coughs> charge? Uh, I'm not sure how it charges to be honest. So it's got this liquid metallic alloy, uh, which is a sensing element. It's uh, and then the sensor can be can be woven into a glove. They're saying right. that a doctor could wear the, this mm. glove as a sensor. So mm, okay. um, it's, de- it's developing <laughs> developing technology. But it, you know, it could really... be it could be based on a sort of inductance type scenario, in which case it may actually generate well, its own wondering. current. If it's, if it's got a pressure, you know, it reacts yeah, to yeah. pressure. Yeah. It might not need an external. Yeah, power supply, yeah. which would be pretty cool. So. That certainly would be better than having a you know a doctor appear to be you know Michael Jacksoning at you. Yeah, so. yeah. Or, or having a, like a, a nine volt strapped to your arm. The sensor's really small. <laughs> yeah. You can't see the sensor, but why have you got that nine volt battery strapped to your arm? Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Just a fifty micron sensor below my skin level. <laughs> That'd be cool. Nice. Doctor Ray. Yes. Um, non-invasive, sort of. Yeah. Non-invasive. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, I actually have uh, something from from New Horizons flyby of Pluto last year. Last year? Two two Two, years ago. Well, the thing is, there was so much data coming out of that 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 people are still making discoveries out of it. And and this is one of the observations, you know, with New Horizons shots of Pluto were just a huge surprise in a a whole number of ways. There was organic stuff there. There was way more than people expected in in so many aspects of what was on Pluto. One thing was, you know, Pluto having an atmosphere kind of blew everybody's mind. But it's actually way colder than predicted, above about 50 kilometers. The atmosphere is much colder than they expected. And you go, how do you expect a temperature profile on Pluto? How did you even have an idea about that? And that came from um, deep space telescopes where they basically did spectroscopy, could figure out what gases were there. And when they flew by, they could figure out a little bit more accurately where gases were there. And they, they estimated the temperature of the atmosphere based on the emissions mm. from gas. But when they flew by, they noticed, both with visible light and non-visible light, Pluto's atmosphere has a haze. Mm. Now, mm. haze comes from, as, as Dr. Shane, the expert on light, will tell you, <laughs> light interacting with particles. And so haze is actually from scattering. And they learned a lot about this haze. It's forward scattering, which means when the light hits the particles, it doesn't bend it, so it doesn't reflect. It, it kind of bends it a little bit, absorbs the light, and keeps going, which tells us about the size of them. It also means it doesn't, it wouldn't make Pluto look shiny. So ah, that's why we, okay. you have to be there to see it. But these particles are actually, there's been a recent study that came out of uh, Johns Hopkins and UCSB where they think the, the haze is actually the reason Pluto's temperature is colder mm, than, than okay. we expected. And it's because those particles interact with light, they can absorb heat from the sun, uh, and that heats things up, but it's at steady state. So the heat that goes in has to go out. Hmm. So the heat that goes in on those particles, those particles are great at absorbing energy, but they're also fantastic of radiating energy as well. And so this is kind of like a little heat pump that's actually caused Pluto to be colder than just if it had gases there. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And, what's, here's, and, and this is the cool part, though. It's a testable hypothesis because nobody's been able to sample if you have those particles there. They have an idea on how they might form based on the organic things that are in the atmosphere. But if that hypothesis is right, then Pluto does look shiny to telescopes, just not in visible light. Mm. It should be radiating heat in the IR where we don't see it because that's where heat's radiated in the IR spectroscopy. Now, the challenge is we don't have a detector right now that's sensitive enough to see Pluto's IR signature. It's radiative heat. But, of course, the James Webb Telescope has a mid-IR sensor on it. So their hypothesis is that basically Pluto should look shiny 
if you look in the IR yeah. from all this heat coming up, and they mm. reckon they can test this hypothesis with the James Webb. In just a couple of years. And, uh, yeah. and it's fascinating. <clears throat> there are no planet quite has this. One of Titan's moons does, and part of Jupiter's atmosphere. Where does, where does it come from? So this is really cool. So I'm like, where do you get the particles from? Because they had to guess. They, they said, well, if we use this type of particle, and it's probably there. The best hypothesis they have is that organic particles, organic components in the atmosphere are actually reacting with light. They photoreact, and oh, actually okay. then what you're left with is a precipitate, precipitate yeah, particle. Sure. Um, look, particulates and atmospheres, we know from our own atmosphere, are an important thing. In, in, in models to describing global temperature, the initial ones in the 70s, basically underpredicted mm. or, mm. or overpredicted mm. things, and mm. they missed a little bit because we didn't take into account particles in our atmosphere. Now, where the particles are in our atmosphere is way more complicated. If they're up high, they might reflect mm -hmm. light. If they're up low, then, you know, and, you know it, it, it's a fog. And if they get water and they're really low, it's called smog. But those particulates actually can really affect how an atmosphere retains heat. So we know particles matter, but just nobody ever thought they'd be on Pluto. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. but, but haze is what <clears throat> cools Pluto. Nice. Not, nice. not just an icy block. But good stuff. No, um, you know, I'm a huge Pluto fan. Although I'm very excited about the next um, New Horizons encounter, which could be just as interesting. Where is it? Where is it going? Well, into, it's f further into the, the Kuiper Belt. So, but it will it will encounter another new object in just a few mm -hmm. years, and this is going to be really exciting because we may find more you know exotic and amazing things rather than just big chunks of ice. So that'll be um, that'll be fascinating oh, wow. to see. Anyway, uh, I wanted to mention, just before we go to the break, my news, of course, is not really my news, but it's that uh, Dr. Catherine has been named the Victorian Tall Poppy of the Year. Yay! Thank you very much. <laughs> We're very proud of our uh, hosts here when they do something special. And don't worry, Chris Gepi, your day will come. Really? <laughs> really? You're, you, have a, you have a confidence that I've long given up on. That. <laughs> That's just optimism at this point. Well, uh, I figure statistically there's a chance. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but uh, Catherine, tell us. I mean, tell us a little bit about the comp and you know what it means. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's really a true honour to be honest to to be awarded this. For them. <laughs> well, I feel like <laughs> <I feel laughs> yeah. um, the Australian Institute of Policy and Science, uh, you know, was initiated in the 1930s, but this campaign and these awards came out in, in 1998 was the first sort of campaign, and it's for young, uh, it's it's called the Young Victorian Tall Poppy Science Award. So uh, there were 10 of us shortlisted this year, and I was extremely honoured to be to be the Victorian sort of winner. Uh, so it's for researchers, scientists under the age of 40. Uh, I've been back through this week over the list of people. There's some amazing people in the past. Um, in the first round, Professor Doug Hilton, who mm. is many people will be will know of Doug Hilton, um, the director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Uh, someone even more familiar to our listeners back in 2006, Dr Shane. Was it that uh, long ago? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, wow. I'm actually happy to hear that because I thought it was 2005. <laughs> <laughs> Every year matters, mate. I know. You've got to count them. <laughs> but more importantly, it's about promoting science to the community mm. and it's about um, engagement particularly of young people in science and this is what I'm really excited about. So next year we will be have the opportunity to go into schools, uh, talk to students about science, why science is so important, hopefully inspire people to take a career in science uh, and, and it's about these community programs. So I'm really looking forward to, um, to a busy 12 months ahead, getting out into the community and talking about science. Mm, it's going to be fun. Awesome. Sadly, no big novelty check. No, no. <laughs> and, and no sash. But These yeah, are very so, easy yeah, things yeah. to do. It's a yeah, very simple thing. Do a sash. You're big on the sash. I know you. I just think it's underused. <laughs> <laughs> or inappropriately used. <laughs>
<laughs> but no, you're going to have fun. We'll get we'll get you to talk a bit about some of the schools you go to, um, you know, and and yeah, for, for the great. listeners out there, and, and you know, I'm going to say this on the air now, so that she's completely yeah. jammed up. But I've challenged uh, Dr. Catherine to go to the most needy schools in Melbourne. Uh, leave the private schools out of it. And um, I remember doing that when I was uh, what was it, 2006? Uh, and and I actually got a lot more out of it by going to the schools that, um, frankly, most of the universities normally don't give a toss about, and they don't get much. Um, they don't get much. And and if you go to those schools, you find the kids are, are really engaged and really you know eager to learn more. Yeah, so. it's a great idea, and I will take that challenge on. <laughs> nice. Very good. Yep, jammed up completely. Anyway, <laughs> all right, we're going to take a break, folks, uh, for a little bit of music, and we'll be. Back in just a moment with a guest from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. There you are listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Rebecca Del Conte. She is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Rebecca, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Hi, Dr. Shane. Thank you very much for having me on today. Look, it's great to get you in. Um, first of all, congratulations. You you are the, I mean, what are these award winners in the studio mm-hmm. today? The 2017 Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre Picky Award. Um, now, for people who aren't aware, the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre does work on cancer. We don't need to point it comprehensively. Yeah. Um, so if, you, if you're driving down Royal Parade, you'll see this beautiful new cancer building, which is extraordinary, and that's basically where the VCCC sits, but it is a collaboration of many partners, one of which is the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. Now, you're doing your PhD at the moment. How far through are you? Yes, so I'm coming to the pointy end of the PhD at the moment, so I'm about two years and eight months in, so coming up for three years in March, so okay. it's a very busy time for me at the moment. Are you riding up yet? Uh, I've started a very rough draft. Cool. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's it's going well. There's still a lot to do in the lab. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's a good time. Busy, okay. but great. Now, the award, what what's the award for? Because is this normally, is it given out to PhD students normally or is it a general award? Tell us a bit about that. So, um, they, they've kind of changed it over the last, I think they've given out four awards now over the last four years. And, um what they look at is, so this year they looked at three different areas of cancer research. So they were looking at basic science, um, clinical translational research, mm-hmm. and also um, population health. Um, and it was it is aimed towards PhD students, late stage, I think third year PhD students. So uh, I was in the basic science category yep. for this year. Okay. Yeah. Now, you work on something called natural killer cells. Yeah, they're cool, aren't they? <laughs> so they sound cool. Um, so what's a natural, kill, natural killer cell? Yeah, so um, it, they're really, they're amazing. So they're these um, immune cells. So they're a, a subset of the immune system. And what they do is, so everyone has natural killer cells in their, most people have natural killer cells in their body. And their major job is to be kind of act like this sentinel of the immune system. So mm-hmm. they're constantly circulating around your body and they're looking for damaged or infected or potentially cancerous cells in your body. And what their job is is to destroy those cells before they become or before they manifest in something um, like cancer, for example. Hmm. So that's their innate kind of ability. So we have, I mean, this is important because our bodies are screwing up all the time, as I understand yeah. it. So <laughs> these cells are essentially cleaning that up yeah, all, exactly. all through our lives. I mean, as children as well? Yeah. I mean, because when you think about it, I mean, we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of cells in our body and they're constantly undergoing replication mm-hmm. and they're in cell cycle. And I mean, we don't often think about it on a day-to-day basis, but this is obviously um, 
you know, a huge job. They're undergoing um, cell cycle and all these processes have to happen. And um, it, what happens is that there's a lot of things that can go wrong, as you mm. said, um, and there's errors. And so what a natural killer cell can do is it can see when a cell might have, I don't know, um, something's gone wrong with its uh, with its genes that are involved in cell cycle and they can register that, okay, that, that cell's not doing its job. We're just going to get rid of it now before it does anything mm. worse. Okay. And how does... I always find this fascinating how one of these cells is floating around, mm -hmm. comes across a problem, does it, it takes it on itself, does it signal to other natural killer cells, hey, I need some help here? Or, like, how does that whole scenario work? Yeah, so I guess it depends on, on the context. So, for example, if if it's just one one cell, one rogue cell, for example, mm -hmm. that that seems to be um, undergoing some kind of damage, this can usually be cleared up by probably one natural killer cell, for example. But mm. in the case of cancer, um, this is when this job um, becomes an overwhelming job for that natural killer cell to be able to, to kill this cell and they're, they're constantly outgrowing. So then natural killer cells will recruit other natural killer cells and they're actually... So we have the adaptive immune system and the innate immune system and natural killer cells really cross this barrier between the two so if if the signals are becoming overwhelming what natural killer cells can do is they can secrete different um, types of uh, hormones for example or cytokines and then um, this can recruit the adaptive immune system so your t cells and your b cells to come in and then also help to fight the infection or, or the cancer and how do you know well First of all, the adaptive immune system versus the innate immune system. I mean, what's yep. the what's the difference there? So the innate system is um, innate immune system is more rapid. So when uh, when you have, for example, if you get a cut or um, you you hurt yourself, something like that, and mm -hmm. there's an infection, the innate immune system are the rapid responders. So they'll come in straight away and start trying to repair the damage. Okay. And um, what they do uh, is then they recruit the adaptive immune system. So the adaptive immune system is very specific. So that's one of the major differences as well. Innate is fast and non-specific, mm -hmm. so they'll come in anywhere <clears throat> yep. that there's infection and then they'll recruit the adaptive immune system. It takes longer to come in, but um, what they're going to do is they're going to be highly specialised to do the job to clear the infection. Right. So when we're, when we're sick for a few days, yep. the innate immune system's chugging along, but... Yep. losing <laughs> and the adaptive immune system then comes in and exactly. finishes the job yep, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and when these cells attack is it a you know kill and be killed scenario like do i have a, a kill <laughs> two goes in one comes out yeah is it, is it a sort of kamikaze thing or is it is it you know can a can a killer cell one of these killer cells actually you know continue on for after it's knocked off quite a lot of problem cells yeah so this is where <clears throat> some problems arise so in a in a healthy person when you have an infection, for example, your adaptive system comes in, so it expands and it, it goes in and it fights the infection and then what, what your normal body process is to then um, get rid of those cells so then they die off and then your body goes back into a state of homeostasis. But um, what can happen in the case of cancer, for example, is that your adaptive immune system, something can go wrong and it, it can't be switched off, so then you mm. have this outgrowth of cells that are supposed to be helping you um, but then they themselves have undergone some kind of genetic change and then they start to grow out and that's, that's where you get things like leukaemia, for example. Mm, right, right. Mm. I'm wondering, so the natural killer cells are cells mm -hmm. and, and their whole role for, reason for being is to go out and fight other cells that are either dysfunctioning or diseased or whatever in some way. Yep. 
Do natural killer cells themselves ever do that? Do they ever go wrong or stop working? Yes, yeah, so that's a super interesting question, and one of the reasons I'll do that my I best. <laughs> one of the reasons <laughs> I really enjoy working on them. Um, so, if you look at the statistics, for example, of um, leukemia, you can see that um, a, lo- a lot of different types of leukemia are either T cell, B cell, or myeloid cell origin. Um, there are very, very few natural killer cell. Um, like a based leukemia. Mm. So they, they do exist, um, but they're very rare. So their, their homeostasis and their, their genetic regulatory elements are so heavily controlled that, um, yeah, it, that it's really cool. It's amazing. They're a model cell. Mm, exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and do we have a certain number of natural killer cells? So are we born with a number and, and they can die off and, and that's it, or do they develop and proliferate with, um, with life? So, I mean, they're constantly undergoing, you know, um, cell death and then regeneration and that kind of thing. Um, There's been some super interesting studies actually looking at the frequency of natural killer cells in in the periphery and the incidence of cancer. So there was this, uh, there was a really good study. It was a it was a long-term study. I think it was over 11 years. And then they uh, found this correlation between um, people that had lower uh, frequencies of natural killer cells in the periphery actually having an increased incidence of cancer. So um, this was super interesting. So we don't all have the exact same number. That I think they make up around 20... I think, yeah, around 20% of the periphery in a normal human. So, hmm. mm. um, You mentioned they, they work as sentinels and identify mm-hmm. possible infections or things that are misbehaving. Are there any types of cancer or infections that are stealthy or that sentinel killer cells are, might miss? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, these, they're, they're like, these things are amazing. I, sometimes I, I, when I think about it, I'm like, God, this stuff's going on in my body every day. It's like starting to get freaked out. But, um, <laughs> no, the, um, it's, it's really, I mean, obviously, like the natural killer cells' main job is to stop you from getting cancer or getting an infection, but we still do get sick. We still have cancer. Um, and this is because of, of these kind of stealthy cells, I guess. So... One of the main, uh, the reason um, that natural killer cells were even discovered in the first place is because uh, one of the the major ways that they can actually recognise and kill stressed or damaged cells is by the interaction with a molecule called MHC class 1. And so um, in the body, you're always expressing, every cell is expressing that molecule. And um, so when when a natural killer cell is going around to look for a damaged cell, it's interacting with that molecule on healthy cells and it's saying, okay, this one's part of the body, it's fine, I'll leave that one alone. Um, And then what can happen is that in a tumour, for example, they might downregulate that molecule to hide from the other part of the immune system, from the adaptive immune system, but the natural killer cell sees that that Mm. molecule is missing and it says, okay, I'm going to kill you now. But then one of the ways that um, the cell, the tumour cells can get around that is then by upregulating that marker again and looking like that it is... Yeah, uh, yeah. so, I mean, yeah, yeah they're, they're very smart. <laughs> now, it, Rebecca, it seems to me as though on one hand I've got pluripotent stem cells, mm-hmm. then I know I've got these killer cells mm-hmm. that can do a job for me, and then I've got someone who's got cancer riddled mm. throughout their body and, and, you know, traditional things like radiotherapy and so forth are no yep. longer viable. <clears throat> I, I mean, how are we going at joining these pieces up? Because presumably I should be able to 
try and fabricate a natural killer cell that very specifically goes after the type of cancer I know because I can do the the gene analysis of that cancer. Yeah. I mean, are, are we on that path? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely on, on that path and that's where I guess my research comes in my PhD project. So I'm really interested in immunotherapy, which is... Um, harnessing these these abilities that our immune system already has but making them better Mm -hmm. um and you know using all these things that that you've just described to really make it a much more targeted approach to Mm. cancer therapy um which is great because i mean when you think about traditional therapies like radiotherapy like chemotherapy while these have been you know moderately successful they they cause a lot of off-target effects. They mm, cause a lot mm. of damage, not only to the cancer cells, but also to the healthy cells. And, um, I mean, when you, you imagine a cancer patient who is already quite sick and yep. then you have this really aggressive therapy, um, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. So what we really want to do with immunotherapy is take this specialised system that's already been designed to target um, cancerous or mm. infected cells but really harness that and increase it and improve it so that they're better at their job. Do do you think it will also address that issue where people have recurrences of cancer? It it, it always amazed me when I first heard about that, the idea you can have chemotherapy and various things and just Mm. knock it out all all together. Then five years later, because it was hiding somewhere. I mean, the techniques we use at the moment, let's say, relative to the immune system are kind of dumb. I mean, you know, low-tech. Oh, yeah. um, low tech. Um, I mean, they're smart, but they're, they're, low, they're low tech. But but the immune system, you know, it just goes everywhere. You know, so the the chances of it sort of stopping that problem. Do you think that will be one of the big outcomes from these sorts of therapies? Yeah, I think so. This is another big area of research. Um, I don't work on it myself, but um, looking at the kind of uh, the signature of a tumor cell and how it changes once you undergo something like chemotherapy, these ones that are, like you said, they may be hiding somewhere Mm. um, and really trying to understand how they do that, where they're hiding and why the immune system can't see them. So I do, I really feel like things like immunotherapy will be able to benefit um, those those type of treatments. And also, depending on the type of immunotherapy that we're, you know, that you might might be looking at designing mm. um this it might be a long-term you know a long-term kind of therapy so yeah if maybe this cell comes out of hiding but you're having this treatment that has been right. maintained in your body it's going to see that cell and kill it off yeah, so we do it more like the way we do of hiv and so forth you just permanently keep it in check yeah yeah, yeah. sort of a yeah that's what I was wondering, actually. Would people be on these, these immunotherapy drugs for their entire life to prevent the cancer coming back? Um, it would depend on the type of therapy. So, for example, um, some of these um, T-cell checkpoint inhibitors that have been, uh, they've been in the media quite recently um, for the uh, trying to cure melanoma. And when you're on this type of therapy, this is only going to be while you're taking the medication to fight the cancer off, for example. And then once you st- stop taking the um, the drug, then your immune system should should go back down to normal. But, um, for example, there's these new... Um, a new kind of immunotherapy, they're CAR T-cells. So they're these um, T-cells that you take from, from the patient and then um, you genetically modify them so that they can recognise the tumour and then you put them back into mm. the patient. Mm. And because T-cells uh, have the capacity to to uh, remember these 
specific molecules that they're seeing on the tumour. For that, in that case, yes, you're going to have long-lived um, yeah, anti-tumour response. So. It's, it's awesome stuff. Um, Rebecca, what's next for you? You're almost finished your PhD, so where to? Yeah, so uh, that was a really great thing about receiving the Picky Award. Um, so part of that award was uh, to fund, uh, fund my attendance at an international conference yep. um, next year. So I'm going to attend a specialised natural killer cell conference and it's in San Antonio in Texas. So um, as part of that... I'm going to have a look at a few different labs um, around the United States and kind of decide what I want to do. So when I when I have finished my PhD, I'm hoping to take our world-class research at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute um, overseas and yeah. gain some more skills. You could wear a T-shirt or a jacket at the conference that says, you know, looking for a postdoc <laughs> exactly. position. It's like that. <coughs> you know, <laughs> it's kind nat- of like natural that. killer cell champion or something, you know, like, and, and see how you go because uh, you're going to have to get out there and really make sure everyone knows that you're, yeah, exactly. you're looking. Um, yeah. Well, look, I'm sure Melbourne will be a smaller place about you there uh, working working on this because it's just it's fascinating. And I've said on this show a few times, I expect that within 20 years we will be looking at things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy and that going, oh, we used to, yeah. we used to yeah. do that because the immune stuff is just yeah. so fascinating. And, and the fact that our bodies are so good at doing this job throughout their entire life exactly and we just need to sort of bolster it up a bit when it comes time to um which in a sense is what we've been doing with antibiotics for um mm. for other other illnesses for for you know 100 years or longer um yeah. a while and so. just how much we've learned over a short space of time i think is yeah. really amazing so you know what what are we going to find out in the next 20 years it's endless mm. yeah yeah well look congratulations again on the uh, award and the do, do you have to do any outreach as part of it or it's all all about you? Um. $10,000? Because Catherine, she's got, a, she's got a big and, you know, yes. sing for her supper. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I I like to discuss um, why, you know, why why I've been chosen to win the award. So yeah. that's, um, I Which don't know good, if I have to do that. But... It's not all about sashes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did you get a sash? No, I didn't. No, but I did, <laughs> I did get a really, really lovely glass um, award that oh, my nice. mum won't let me take out of the box because she's worried that it's going to break. So we have that just uh, in the box. I like your mum. <laughs> That's fantastic. Rebecca, thanks so much for coming oh, in and chatting to us much. today. I mean, it's great great to see this sort of stuff. And I mean, as a, as a PhD student, I think you've really, you know, kicked some goals. And it's, uh, it, it is something that other PhD students to take a good hard look at because there are some PhDs out there that aren't achieving a lot and it just goes to show that PhD students are effectively professional scientists when they're in that game and and can achieve a lot. So well done, keep up the good work, good luck with the conference and don't forget to wear that t-shirt and get yourself a good poster. (laughs) Rebecca Del Conte is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. You're listening to Triple R. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be talking uh, talking to a guest hopefully on the phone from Perth. So, you know, that's always high risk folks so you never know. But we'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, we're back. You're listening to 3 R. It's uh, we're having a lot of fun here in the studio, but on the phone with me now, hopefully, we have Professor David Kennedy. David, can you hear me? 
Yes, I can. Now, David, you're from the Classics and Ancient History section of the University of Western Australia, and you've been looking at um, some amazing things there with uh, Google Earth imagery um, in Saudi Arabia. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, yes, Saudi Arabia is, as most people are probably aware, is a very big country, two million square kilometres. And until relatively recently, it was very difficult to do field work there. There were Western teams working there, but not very many. And one of the most important tools that an archaeologist has before they do any field work uh, was one we didn't have access to, namely, we couldn't do aerial archaeology. You wanted mm. to fly in the country, and you couldn't even get access to all the aerial photographs. So when Google Earth came along with high-resolution imagery about uh, nine years ago, suddenly we could look at the landscape of Saudi Arabia. We could do it from our computers in our offices, and we didn't need permission. So, so it so, dramatically transformed. Yeah, so, so what sort of things would you look for? Because, I mean, I know with a lot of the... You know, all of the ancient structures, of course, I mean, assume that they're buried under centuries of sediment and sand and so forth. I mean, how how do you use the imagery to find some of these structures? Well, it's certainly true that a lot of uh, ancient structures have been buried. You know, Saudi Arabia's large parts of it are now are desert, uh, and we're aware that there's a lot of structures being buried there. But the ones I've been looking at that you can see on Google Earth are structures that are on the surface. They're stone-built structures. They're very clear. At ground level, you really don't see them because the walls are not very high and they're in a landscape that's strewn with boulders, so mm -hmm. you really don't sort of pick out anything in particular. You go up a bit higher and everything is suddenly crystal clear. So that's where Google Earth came in and uh, having discovered that you could see some very remarkable sites in the in Saudi Arabia. I started doing a lot more work on it, and uh, I published three or four articles on on the subject, including ones that probably is the reason that you're talking to me. That mm. you've seen that uh, Live Science, a, a website in the United States, carried a, a major feature on some work I'm just about to publish. That was taken up by the New York Times and Newsweek and so on. And uh, I imagine that. Uh, you, you saw it in one of those or in the, one of the mm. Australian newspapers. Yeah, and that, that's the idea of these, these so-called gates, these large um, stone structures. Tell, I mean, what are they exactly? Uh, what they're for, I've absolutely no idea. I've had numerous people write to me since, these, uh, since we've had the media attention with all sorts of suggestions, none of which really work because I mean, the people who are sending the suggestions are well-intentioned, but they, they, they don't really understand the landscape or the, the total picture. So essentially what you've got is a, a stone-built structure consisting of what looks like an old-fashioned field gate that's lying flat on the ground. You've got a post at either end and then bars running between it, hmm. uh, except that these can be very large. You know, the, the, the largest one we've seen is about uh, 500 metres long. You know, so they, these are big structures, and it's not at all obvious what they're for. I mean, they, they don't seem to have openings leading into them, so it doesn't look like they were used for pins, and they're actually quite well built. And the, the the post at either end, as I'm calling it, uh, can be up to ten metres wide. You know, boulders heaped up ten metres wide. Hmm. So the and we, we found almost four hundred of those scattered across one of these lava fields in west central Saudi Arabia. That, I mean, that that sounds like you, you know either something to do with, with housing or farming or I, I mean, if it's that, if there's that many of them, they they were obviously in general use. Uh, well, but they, sometimes you'll get a group of maybe 10, 15, 20, very close together, mm -hmm. quite varied in size, you know, some 10 metres long, and the, the one next to it will be 400 metres long. And 
sometimes you find them in completely isolated, just in ones and twos, and we've got one group of them are on the slope of a volcano. You know, so they're absolutely nothing to do with agriculture. But, right, uh, yeah. And uh, even, the, even the other ones that are in areas where there's at least seasonal water courses, uh, we're talking about a lava field. It's a volcanic lava field, so it's not an obvious place for people to be doing farming. And I can't conceive of why you would need to build structures like this in any case for mm. something to do with farming. So, uh, for, fortunately, my, my role in all this is that I'm an aerial archaeologist. I'm actually a Roman archaeologist, but uh, as a, an aerial archaeologist, my job is sort of finding these things, cataloging them, mapping them, and doing the sort of preliminary analysis. It will require ground archaeologists to actually conduct field survey to look for artifacts, perhaps excavation. And that hopefully then will lead on to an explanation for what these are. But at the moment, they're just a rather mysterious structure. Hmm. Uh, a lot of them. Uh, this is Dr. Ray. I was really curious about your comments about the aerial archaeological part. Um, when you said Google Maps is there and that's, that, that's, that's effectively a bunch of high-resolution flyby photos, um, you said when you look at that scale, things are just obvious. Now, is... Is that obvious to a trained eye or a synergistic eye? I imagine some of the structures you described might have been obvious to even the, the, the lay observer. But in that context, how critical is the trained eye? And have you been able to or considered or thought about taking up image analysis technology? Could you use machine learning to train an image analysis tool to start to have your eye around things to to be able to look through, say, a lot more of Google Maps faster? Or is, or is it, it, it's not that simple? It, 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 it's weighing up years of experience, or is there any way to train a computer to do some of this? Uh, we've thought about that a number of times because it would speed the whole process up enormously uh, if we could actually have it done in some automated fashion you know, using uh, technology to recognize types of structures. but. I've concluded that probably it wouldn't work. Uh, you don't really need to have a, a particularly trained eye to see something in the landscape that is plainly not natural. You know, there's not a rocky outcrop. It's something that must be man-made. Uh, you, know, you, you can learn this in five minutes, you know, which, which is natural and which isn't. But because of the enormous variety in the shapes and sizes of these things, it's difficult to see how you've actually automated in some way. And although we've considered Consider it a number of times we all sort of come back to the simple need for a human eye to systematically look through this imagery, to divide the landscape up into blocks and you know, simply work your way through it in a systematic fashion, looking for things that are obviously man-made intrusions in the landscape and sticking in a pin, cataloging it, attempting to define what it is, you know, whether it's a gate or a kite or a wheel, what you know, the various types of structure we're talking about. Mm. and take it from there. It's a, it's a very time-consuming process, but of course in the process as well, something that the machine wouldn't be able to do if you could automate it, is that we learn a lot about the landscape. Uh, you know, if you could automate it, you, know, you might find that you could come up with some program that would identify different types of structures, but it wouldn't tell you much about their context and other things that you might see in the landscape and associations and so on. Mm. So I think we're stuck with the human eye, fortunately, because it's, it's great fun doing it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. consuming. Keep, keeps you in a job <laughs> too, too, David. Um, I think that the, the, what's, what's, the, um, what's the next step here? Are these things, I mean, Saudi, you know, modern-day Saudi Arabia was a bit different probably when they, these were, were being built. Are you expecting to find these similar structures in, you know, neighbouring countries and so forth as well? And, and what would that mean if you did? 
Uh, well, in fact, we, we started with them in neighbouring countries. Uh, as a student back in Manchester in 1971, I, browsing around the University Library, I encountered the archaeological periodical that's called Antiquity, and there in volume one of that was a, an article by a Royal Air Force pilot called The Works of the Old Men in Arabia. Hmm. He was one of these pilots who was flying the airmail route that had just been established in 1921 across what is now Jordan uh, to Iraq. And as they flew over the lava field in northern Jordan, they saw extraordinary structures on the ground beneath them. You know, that no. They'd assumed there was nothing there. It's a lava field. It's just black boulders. It's, you know, nobody lives there apart from a few Bedouin. But suddenly they were seeing that there were hundreds, thousands of stone-built structures that uh, you don't see on the ground. Yeah. And that was what stimulated me to, to work on this for the on and off for the next 40 years. So that when we had this chance to look at the landscape of Saudi Arabia, uh, in the way that pilots were able to do in Jordan, you know, 80 years ago, uh, it was tremendously exciting. And of course, the first place I went to was to look at the lava fields in Saudi Arabia to see if they were similar to the one in Jordan. Mm. And of course, they are. Uh, we're seeing the same kind of structures, same mm. categories of structure, but often the design is slightly different. Um, so that, that's what's exciting. Yeah. Look, it's, say, it's what is the next? Yeah, yeah. What's next? Next. Uh, well. Uh, you're responding to an article that was published in Live Science and the New York Times about a month ago now, three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. One consequence of that was that I suddenly got a message from a government agency in Saudi Arabia saying, we've seen this article as well. Would you like to come? We've got a helicopter. We'll fly you over these things. Oh, that's nice. so cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was on Saturday. On Sunday, I got my visa and tickets. Uh, sent by them and on Wednesday we were there and we wow. spent three days 15 hours flying over one area northwest of Saudi Arabia wow. in, the, in their helicopter and I'm just back working through the 6,000 photographs we took. Well look that, so that sounds fantastic David, I mean we, um, we're out of time here but uh, taking the photos yourself compared to Google Earth I'm sure is much more rewarding so we would love to know when you when you and colleagues eventually work out what these things are. It'd be great to um, it would be great to hear more about these. So thank you so much for chatting to us today, and, and good luck with the work. Good, thanks very much. Thank you, Professor David Kennedy is uh, from Classics and Ancient History at the University of Western Australia. Really cool stuff. I love the way it started in 1971. Yeah, it's yes, also really, yes. really cool stuff. Now we're going to just take a quick break to play some uh, station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment with uh, a little bit more news. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you are listening to Triple R. We're just uh, talking about the amazing work there in the break. It's 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 so cool stuff. Um, I wanted to just quickly mention before we go though that the um, Nat NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory (JPL) for those of us in the know. Chris Kepi's laughing at me. Um, they've actually brought out a new tool that's being used um, by many around the world that helps map sea level rise um, on a on a city by city basis. Because one of the things that people forget, it's not like you you know chuck a big brick into your bathtub and it rises by the same amount on every side in every location. Mm. The Earth is not some nice perfect sphere. It basically has different gravitational interactions at, uh, in different locations because of its different density in different locations. And, of course, depending on where the water is coming from, um, you, you get different effects in different cities. And so what they've been able to do now is to actually start to link up 
the the origins of the the ice melt so whether it's in greenland or whether it's in antarctica and compare that to through this model to what will for example happen in new york city versus some others and what they've found is that in some cases it doesn't really matter um so in new york for example it doesn't matter where it comes from they're in trouble. Whereas in, for example, um, the northern parts of the Antarctic ice sheet will disproportionately affect Sydney. So they're starting to map depending on, you know, where you are, what's going oh, on. Yeah. What yeah, I'm in West Melbourne, just above the rise where the Docklands are. Like, I want to yeah. go look this up. Am I going to have a beach now? <laughs> look, I... Right, right when, front. Uh, you, you, you joke, Ray, but when I bought my block of land and built my house, I checked the altitude and it was 115 metres and I'm expecting beachfront by 2050. Uh-huh. And um, that's been pretty sad, yeah, actually. It won't, but it won't be a beach... It's just water. Yeah, it'll just be a cliff where, <laughs> yeah. where the next suburb fell in. Exactly. Yeah, it won't be good. But but it's it's fascinating, you know, the complexity of this and the fact that NASA's now starting to do these tools. And I've been sharing a lot of um, imagery and, and stuff on our Facebook site recently, which is just um, showing some of these details. It's really, it's it's disturbing, but it's gorgeous to watch the aerosol, you know, video patterns, watching them move around the world and all these things and the heat maps and Anyway, if you want to have some fun at home, uh, grab yourself a population distribution map of the world and overlay it with the coastlines and and uh, also overlay it with where earthquakes happen and overlay mm. it with every natural disaster you can think of mm. and you'll find that humans hang there. We're out of time. Uh, Chris KP, Catherine, Ray, good to have you all in. I'm Dr Shane. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. Have a great Sunday and we will chat to you again next week. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogo and 3RRR. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.